Good morning. Welcome, everyone. Uh, sorry for the late start there. This is Pastor Lars here at Lord of Grace uh, here in Marana. Welcome to episode nine of my series on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Religionless Christianity. We're going to keep looking at some of the letters that he wrote to his friend Eberhard Betke from the Tegel prison. And this is where he's beginning to formulate or throwing out ideas about a Christianity that is, uh, I want to say adaptable, but sort of getting back to the basics of Jesus without some of the things that have been piled on it from the Middle Ages. And he's essentially arguing that those things that have been piled on it, those beliefs and those worldviews, are not intrinsically Christian worldviews. They aren't necessarily things of Jesus, but they're things that became uh, added on to Christianity. And so that's his idea of a religionless Christianity. There was a book he was going to write, never wrote it, uh, got executed before he got the chance to fill out all his ideas. So we're going to try to take a look at some of his, the initial things he throws out, the initial ideas, uh, maybe help explain some of that. I think he's very insightful for today. Uh, so we'll get into this. Before we get too much farther, I just want to take a step back. I was thinking about this religionless idea. And I was hearing a praise song uh, on, um, I saw it on YouTube, it came up. Uh, I, I have one of those mixed relationships with praise songs. Some of them are just absolutely awesome. Uh, some of them are not as, are less awesome. But this one was a pretty good song. The particular artist, she was, to, her point was, I'm giving up my religion for you. And I thought it was kind of an interesting idea because I listened to it and I'm like, what does she mean by giving up religion? Uh, what is she giving up? And uh, inevitably, inevitably, it boils down to uh, rituals, uh, practices, traditions, and this is the stuff I'm, I'm getting rid of all the sort of things, that, the motions, that, the things that involve going through motions, and I'm just going to get back to the heart. It's just going to be you and me, Jesus, in my heart. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard versions of that where the, the word religion is equated with robes, altars, sacraments, uh, churches that have paintings in them, uh, anything that involves anything that usually that looks remotely like Roman Catholic. That's considered religion, but a true Christian just has Jesus in their heart. I, I could go on for a while on how that isn't really Jesus. Jesus never uses the phrase, in your heart. Jesus never makes a distinction in that sense, between your mind and your heart. And Judaism never makes a distinction between having an emotional connection with God and following God's law and practicing God's law. Uh, those are all, you know, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, absolutely. And then you go out and follow the law. The, the, this weird sort of distinction, it's kind of an American thing in some ways, I think. Uh, in the U.S., we're kind of into the emotion of it. Uh, you get think of kind of acting schools. You know, you go to England and you study acting, and there it's about acting. It's about pretending. These are the motions you do. This is how you look like. You know, you actually. You know, this is how you look like. You're this pretend character. You come to the U.S. and you get Daniel Day Lewis and his. I must feel the being of the character and its emotions. I remember a theater professor saying that's such an American thing, that always having to feel everything. Um, religion that's about feeling things, 
uh, has its own pitfalls, of course. I've, I was a part of a group like that in college, and I found that you had to, if you weren't feeling it, you had to pretend to feel it, and which is exactly the opposite of the whole point of what they were supposed to be all about, right? If I'm play-acting the motions of feeling it, uh, how is that different than just going to a liturgical service and going through motions? And maybe the truth is I'm going through those motions helps me to feel it. Well, anyways, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not against robes uh, by pastors. He wasn't against altars or sacraments or written liturgies or scripted prayers. He wasn't against the existence of denominations and bishops. Uh, he wasn't against traditions and the church year and all these things that, that you know, supposedly they want to wipe away. He never advocated that we should only worship in a giant, white, empty auditorium, uh, you know, void of any color. Uh, he never said that we should not uh, sing hymns or have a written confession. Those were not the things that were what he was trying to remove. What he was trying to remove was a lot of the theology and a lot of the worldview since the Middle Ages. So that's my little preface clarification on that. We are not going to try to strip away altars and robes. You know, robes to me are, you know, I do it at one service, I don't do it at the other. It's not a bad thing, it's not a necessary thing. That's kind of how I look at it. Uh, but uh, so he's going to talk about a much deeper issue, and we're going to get back to that today because Bonhoeffer is going to pick up on some of his earlier ideas on pushing God out. And this one I'm calling emergency exits because that's kind of a phrase he uses at one point in his writing about how, you know, the church is desperate to figure out where do we put God in the world uh, and is there an emergency exit we can go to, you know, that, that when all else fails, just say. Uh, and he's saying that Christians have no emergency exit. You just have this world. So let's get back. I'm going to move over. I'll, we'll throw up the slides here. I'm going to give you a quick rundown again. Uh, of the worldview, uh, the secular versus the religious worldview. And again, this is important particularly for Christian uh, leaders to know because secularism is about much more than just people being lazy on Sunday morning. It's a whole worldview. Uh, so let's, get a, let's go to the slides here. I, I went to my uh, graphic designer and had very sophisticated art made. Uh, so picture this, the green sphere here is the world, right? Green sphere is the world. And in the uh, pre-modern worldview, so before the Enlightenment, before 1600, 1700s, everything in the world was infused with God. And everything that happened was a theological question, again. If there was an earthquake, it was a theological question. Was God mad at us? Is God punishing us? Were those people sinners? Why did God send the earthquake? Those were theological questions. Now we see an earthquake and go, oh, the plate tectonics moved. We don't even have God in the question, right? But that's the pre-modern world. And it's, in a sense, much easier to have religion when everything around you is a religious question, right? And so there isn't really an assumption. They said by the 1500s, you know, even as late as the 1500s, there's pretty much nobody around that was a true atheist. You know, there are people who had various degrees of doubt, but a true atheist who really would have said, you know, I can go through this world without any reference to any divine being, uh, they were hard to find, you know, because it was everywhere. 
So the church didn't have to worry about convincing people God existed. That was, ev that was evident. The only question was, how does God work, right? Uh, then the next slide uh, here. Again, I just, I, I'm, I, I went nuts with the graphics here, so uh, you can send me your art award. Uh, all right, so then along comes the Enlightenment. And in the world, what they do is God gets kind of pushed out of the world, and the questions about the world start getting answered scientifically. And Darwin, Bonhoeffer will specifically mention Darwin among them, uh, the whole idea of empiricism, you know, I only follow what I can actually see, uh, and science, and so what they're trying, and so they essentially all those questions about the earthquakes and the diseases and the things that people used to ask as God questions are now being asked as science questions without reference to God. So where does God fit in? And so then the answer was, well, God is about ethics, morals, right? Thomas Jefferson, cutting out all the miracles out of the Bible, but saying Jesus was a good moral teacher, right? Because they thought that ethics was the one thing that couldn't be answered with science. And I've heard some interesting debates, yes or no, about that. Uh, I did hear a podcast by a theoretical physicist, and he, he even he said, you know, ultimately ethical systems are made up. And I, I thought that was quite a big admission from him. Uh, so that's kind of the next phase, right? But we're going to hold on. We still have the space of ethics. We can't answer physical questions with God, but, but the, the space of ethics and morals is reserved. That's outside of science. Well, let's get to the next slide. And then it gets even farther. So this is what Bonhoeffer is talking about, God getting pushed out, right? So now, now it's gotten to the point where people don't even turn to God for ethical questions, for moral questions, right? What's the prevailing ethics in America today? If it feels good and it doesn't hurt anybody else, do it, right? There's no morals. As long as consenting adults are consenting, Anything they do behind, anything you do, as long as you're consenting, is good. There's no, there isn't right or wrong, just you do you and don't hurt me. Now, trying to define don't hurt me, that can go down an ethical road, but nonetheless, that is how most of our world thinks. So we don't even turn to God for ethical questions anymore. So the whole Jesus is necessary for morals, meh, most people don't necessarily believe in that anymore. So what's left? Well, so I drew an imaginary uh, barrier of death. This is a phrase Bonhoeffer will use. He calls it the barrier of death. So God's been pushed out of ethics. God's been pushed out of the world. Uh, it used to be we would look at the heavens and look at the heavens and go, ah, oh, the heavens prove that God had to have made it. And now science is even claiming to answer that question without God. So now what is left in the universe for God? Well, God still has that space outside of death, after death. God's after death. He still rules there. You can't answer that one, scientist. And so God's been pushed out of our entire world. This is the, the thing that we're dealing with with secularism, is that daily, every single part of daily life and daily experience is lived without any reference to God. How does the church fit into this? Where does religion fit into this? Uh, that's a much deeper, harder question than, than I think we're really ready to ask. And Bonhoeffer is saying, 
what the churches did is first they tried to fall back on ethics and that didn't work. Uh, and now they're just trying, now they've pushed God essentially beyond the barrier of death. So God's about the afterlife and you better think about God so you have an afterlife. But yet now people aren't even turning to God for an afterlife. Now what have you got left? And he argues that if, that, that if you don't have a way to explain God in the world, you, you've, essentially, you've essentially just admitted. You've admitted defeat. Let's go to one more uh, of my detailed diagrams. And um, this is me sort of in a very uh, rough and probably not perfectly accurate way of trying to re-envision, if you're a visual person like me, what it would look like if God was in the world and the world of experience, the world that you see, uh, is a world where God is present again. And we're not trying, this is not a world where we try to make everything uh, mystical again, like it was before the 1500s. Right? We're not trying to go back to a world where people look at uh, an earthquake and you know, ask about God's judgment or not, or whether when they feel the wind blow, they wonder whether it's God's spirit or the demon spirit that blew the wind. We're not trying to go back to an enchanted world of spirits and demons and div everything divine action. What we're trying to do is go back, is relook at the world of experience and say that the world of in the world of experience is where we experience God. And there's kind of an interesting phrase I, I read. What was it? Somebody called it resonance. It's we tend to experience transcendence where there is an overflowing of experience. So let me explain this. It's kind of like when, you know, when someone talks about, I think I'd mentioned this before, the concert, right? You go to the concert and there's so much joy, so much music, so much experience, so many people that that's where the person says that was a transcendent experience, right? I experienced God. It wasn't, but you were experiencing it in an overflowing of stuff, an overflowing of joy, right? You scream, oh God, when you're overflowing with joy, right? Many would say it's the only time secularists uh, turn to the divine. And why, but isn't that interesting that that's what they do? But if you look at pious, old traditional pious Christianity, uh, kind of in its, at its worst, God exists outside. Pleasure is a, a road to hell, you know, it's the taboo. And so God is found in the absence of experience, right? You must have less food and fast so you can see God. You must deprive yourself of pleasure to see God. You must be celibate and, and, and hold it in to see God. That it's all about deprivation, depriving yourself of experience so that you can be open to God. And Bonhoeffer's saying, let's flip that. And he's saying, let's flip that. And there's others who've said that too, that we need to flip the thinking so that God is in the abundance of experience. Like the person who goes on the mountain and has the abundance of beauty. The abundance of beauty is where we experience God, not in the absence of it. Uh, so, there's my big diagram background. Uh, I, I realizing this has become as much of a podcast about uh, the nature of secularism. Uh, and I hope that's been helpful. But that is really what Bonhoeffer is dealing with. And as I've said, Europe dealt with this a lot before the United States, but we are easily where Bonhoeffer was. So, 
let's go on to the text here. Uh, we're going to jump. This is, if you, got, if you had that same copy I did, it's page 341 to 342. This is him picking up on his reflections about God being pushed out. So here we go. We'll read this through. Now I will try to go on with the theological reflections that I broke off not long since. I had been saying that God is being increasingly pushed out of a world that has come of age, out of the spheres of our knowledge and life, and that since Kant, he has been relegated to a realm beyond the world of experience. Theology has, on the one hand, resisted this development with apologetics and has taken up arms in vain against Darwinism, etc. On the other hand, it has accommodated itself to the development by restricting God to the so-called ultimate questions as a deus ex machina, that means that he becomes the answer to life's problems and the solution to its needs and conflicts. All right, so we'll go back here, right? God is being pushed out, and you notice what he says, right? Uh, outside of experience. God is being pushed out of experience, uh, and he's been pushed out of experience ever since Kant. Now, if you're not a Kant reader, which is most of the planet, uh, you probably don't realize how much your thinking today, if you're a Western person, has been influenced by this guy. How very, very, very influential he was. And um, Immanuel Kant was a philosopher in the 1700s in Prussia. He started as a geologist, actually. Uh, and was, he had grown up in a very pietistic version of Christianity where everything was very much about the heart. It was very much this, we're going to strip down all the the altars and the Virgin Marys, and we're just going to be about the heart, the heart, the heart. Pietistic Christianity also tended to be very moralistic, and it didn't sit, none of it sat well with Kant. He never directly criticized it, but what he did end up doing was going after and trying to lay out a philosophy of how to have religion within the limits of reason. And he wrote a book, uh, and I'll show you on the next slide. It is called, this is just one cover, uh, religion within the limits of reason alone. That's what Bonhoeffer is talking about here. How Kant essentially said, he, 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 he gave in to the Enlightenment philosophers and said, yes, uh, religion must exist only within the laws of reason. Well, within the laws of reason, I don't necessarily find God, so therefore, he essentially it backfired is what he's saying. He pushed God out. Kant never became an atheist. He was trying to, in essence, salvage religious belief, but by putting it only within uh, reason, then, you know, then what he ended up doing was creating a sort of a kind of a deist God, like Thomas Jefferson, uh, which is where deism is that belief, again, where God made the universe and then, like they call it the clock, clock winder, wound up the clock, set it in motion, and then sits back and lets it all go. That's the, that's the clockmaker, the deism view of the world. God doesn't act within. God doesn't answer prayers. God doesn't heal the sick. God doesn't change the weather. God doesn't do nothing in the world. The world is closed and God exists outside of it. And so if you're going to have religion within a world that's closed to God's experience, what are you going to have? You're going to have essentially just ethics. Right? Now, I'm oversimplifying Kant, so if you're a Kant philosopher, don't jump through the screen. Uh, I know I'm vastly oversimplifying his 
much more nuanced view. But Bonhoeffer's essentially saying that's the outcome of his beliefs and his writings, regardless of what his intention was, is that he ended up pushing, he ended up pushing God outside of experience. And that that's been our problem, that ever since Kant came, uh, God's been pushed out of experience. Um, so let's get back then uh, to the slide. And he says, uh, theology has resisted uh, the development with apologetics. This is the, I'm going to prove, I'm going to prove God, right? This is Lee Strobel and his case for Christ. And God bless Lee for coming to faith as an atheist. You know, you don't hear too many of those stories. His books, though, and I did read his books, where he talks about his case for Christ, it's apologetics. He's trying to make an argument that, you know, Christ really is right, and he's doing his investigative stuff. Uh, apologetics has been not very successful at all in persuading people because, again, they don't experience it. The, the bigger problem that's going on here with apologetics, of trying to argue God's truthfulness and argue Jesus' divinity, is that you're trying to argue based on, uh, you're trying to use objective facts to do it. And because you can't, in a laboratory, you know, mix three elements and therefore that proves God exists, uh, because you can't do it in that kind of a way, apologetics doesn't work. It also doesn't take into account the whole postmodern view of truth, where truth is either you can measure it with scientifically, um, and some postmodernists don't like science, but I'll leave that for another day. But the general view of modern view of truth is truth is what's true for you. It's your truth. Live your truth. And so truth is so completely relative uh, to the point where, uh, you know, for you to even claim that anything you believe has any sort of objective authority is imposing your truth on me. So in that kind of a world where any religious view is just considered purely subjective opinion based for the individual, there's no way you can make an argument to argue somebody into that. They'll be like, they would just look at Strobel and go, well, that's what you say. That's nice for you. That's your truth. My truth is whatever else. In a postmodern world, the only truth is experience. Experience is the only truth. And so what do we do? We get together at colleges and we tell our stories. We share our lived experiences because that's the only truth. And we just compile them in a book and put them all next to each other without in any way making any judgment or questioning the veracity of these things, you know, because you live your truth. Well, and so this is part of why all these efforts at trying to prove God fall flat because you're trying to make an argument of objective truth, and they're just going, yeah, that's just your opinion. And so, so he says that's failed. And of course, they've tried to take up arms against Darwin, and we've seen how disastrously that has gone, trying to argue for a literal six-day creation, and then they get laughed out of you know, the room. I mean, it was 100 years ago we had the Scopes trial, and you know, 100 years ago the guy got laughed out of the courtroom. And uh, so trying to prove that evolution doesn't happen, you know, that's sort of doubling down on the pre-modern worldview. You know, I, I, I remember sitting one time and there was this uh, science teacher and she, she was looking at, she'd been handed this magazine by some friends of hers and they were good friends. She loved them dearly, but she just did not see where they were. And the friends were trying to convince her 
they were kind of fundamentalists. And they had this magazine, on the cover of the magazine was a person riding a dinosaur. Uh, and I just wanted to, I mean, I'm face palming like, ugh, you know, you're completely so missing the point. Um, trying to disprove Darwinism isn't going to work. But, as I've said before, the goal isn't necessarily to disprove Darwin. The goal is to sow doubt. Because all you need is for the individual to reject Darwin in order for the individual to accept your particular worldview. And so what you do is a little bit like a defense lawyer. You don't prove Dar try to prove Darwin wrong. You just convince people that maybe Darwin doesn't really know what he's talking about. And, you know, you know there's a missing link. And how did that really happen? Can you really prove that? And why does the hammerhead shark have its eyes way out here? You know, these kind of things. And you can sow reasonable doubt to the point where they're like, yeah, yeah, what do they know? What do they know? And then in that space, aha, now you move in. You don't need to disprove it. You just need to convince them to mistrust it. And... Um, so, the fight against Darwin has failed, he said. On the other hand, uh, it has accommodated itself by restricting to the ultimate questions. So here we go again. Is there life and after death? What is the meaning of life? How did all creation come to be? They're hoping that you'll ask these deep ultimate questions and then in the ultimate space beyond experience, once you start looking for things beyond your experience, ah, that's where you'll encounter God. And, and he's saying that is not really, really going to work. I don't know how many of you remember after 9-11. Uh, I was a pastor. I had I'd been a pastor like barely over a year. Uh, so I'm, I'm young, I'm new. Uh, I watched the Twin Towers go down. And there was a momentary increase in church attendance. It lasted about a month. And then everything went back to exactly normal. And there were a lot of churches that were really hoping that this was going to be the tragedy that would jar people out of their smug, middle-class, secular complacency and get them to see that, you know, recognize their human frailty in the midst of tragedy and return to God. They returned to God temporarily for a temporary solace and then went back to their secular lives as they always did. George Barna did a whole poll on it. Uh, there was no lasting effect. You know, the ultimate question thing didn't stick. Why? Because after the initial emotional shock wore off, because they were really going back to church as an emotional coping mechanism, not as a sort of intellectual thing to review the, the to delve into ultimate questions, it, it, didn't, it didn't stay, it didn't stick. Uh, the ultimate questions strategy really just isn't working in a world. Uh, and so, uh, then they say, well, the ultimate questions is a, Bonhoeffer accuses them of making a deus ex machina. You know, when all else fails, God will appear and solve it. And so, let's go to the next slide here. I'll show you a, I googled a very, very sophisticated drawing. But deus ex machina just means God from the machine. If you Google it, there's a metal band by that name. So you kind of have to make sure you pick on the top. Uh, the Greek theater, but in Greek tragedy often there would be these intricate plots and th there would just be no way to resolve it because in our world tragedy often doesn't have a nice resolution, but the play has to end. 
And since they're Greeks and not French, the play has to end somehow with something other than just life is meaningless and painful, let's move on. Um, so the Greeks invented this thing called the deus ex machina, the god from a machine. And they literally built a giant crane and had a rope and they would suspend, they'd either suspend a, a, a you know, a statue of the god, or they'd put a person in a basket to play the god, and that person would descend and then sort things out. This is how it is, and then, and, you know, and then that would be the solution. A little bit like when the babysitter's in charge and the kids have gone crazy and everything's a mess, and you know, the kids won't go to bed, and uh, the babysitter's pulling her hair out, and then finally mom and dad walk in, you know, it's a little bit of a deus ex machina. You go there, you sit down, you get your pajamas on, you're going to bed. No, you can't have the phone. Click, 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 click. Boom. That's deus ex machina. Bonhoeffer's saying we're hoping, they're hoping for a deus ex machina. That people's lives will get to a point where they are so frustrated that they can't find a solution. And there when they've hit the wall... When, when human knowledge and, and, and will and strength have completely failed and there's no other way out, boom, we'll drop God in and God will fix it. What we're finding is people get to those situations and in a secular world, they're just much more comfortable uh, either going to a therapist or saying, eh, life sucks, there's nothing you can do about it. They're not necessarily trying to get beyond that because in a lot of ways it's philosophers who ask ultimate questions. Most of your ordinary people don't go down the street asking ultimate questions. Even when tragedy comes, they don't word it in those ways. So the deus ex machina has failed. People are not hitting the wall of their experience and turning to God. And, um, and so he says there at the end, we'll go back. Uh, well, let's go to the next slide then. Uh, it would be number 10. Okay, so if anyone has no such difficulties... Or if he refuses to go into such things, to allow others to pity him, then either he cannot be open to God, or else he must be shown that he is, in fact, deeply involved in such problems, needs, and conflicts without admitting or knowing it. If that can be done, and existentialist philosophy and psychotherapy have worked out some quite ingenious methods in that direction, then this man can now be claimed for God and Methodism can separate, celebrate its triumph. If he, but if he cannot be brought to see and admit that his happiness is really an evil, his health sickness, his vigor despair, the theologian is at his wit's end. And it's a case of having to do either with a hardened sinner of a particularly ugly type or with a man of bourgeois complacency and the other... Or, and the one is as far from salvation as the other. Okay, lots of good stuff to dig through here. Let's look at this. Um, okay, we'll go back to the top. If no one has difficulties. So Bonhoeffer's saying, what do you do with the person who's perfectly happy, never ever asking an ultimate question? What do you do? Well, the theologian says... You know, that person needs to have their sort of happiness. You got to knock them off their pedestal. Uh, if they're overly content, you need to make them discontent. And, uh, and how are we going to make them discontent? We need to make them realize that things aren't as good as you think they are, right? You may think you got it all wrapped up. You may think you got it good, Mr. Middle Class person, but wait, you just wait, you just wait. And that's what he's saying they're doing. 
that they're they're trying to uh, they're trying to sort of crack open people's contentment to make them discontent so that they can drop God in to fix the discontent. You're breaking a vase so that you can glue it. You're creating a problem so that you can solve it. You're like the unscrupulous car mechanic. You know, person comes in with a car that hardly needs anything but a PVC valve and you, can, you have to convince them they need a water pump because you gotta sell that water pump. That's essentially what he's saying that theologians are doing. And, and then he always gets his dig in against existentialist philosophy and psychotherapy. Uh, and so he claims that both of them are doing the exact same thing. You know, if, if you haven't thought about your existence and thought, pondered your being unto death and thought about the reality of not existing, that would be kind of an existentialist question, you know, then you need to start thinking about death. Because, you know, who... Who doesn't want to interrupt their football game with the guys to a contemplation of their being unto death, you know? Um, and, you know, essentially you're just trying to go out there and ruin people's happiness. No wonder people don't want to be around you. Uh, or psychotherapy. And again, Bonhoeffer is talking in the 1940s. I think he's talking about psychotherapy at its worst. And, and I will say that, you know, like with any other thing. Uh, there's a lot of great ideas that come out of existentialist philosophy and psychotherapy. But if you study Freud himself, you will find that he in particular was really good at dealing with people who actually were uh, with sort of repressed stuff. But if you didn't, he would convince you you were. So veterans would come home from World War I and they would be sent to Freud for therapy because obviously they're deeply traumatized all over the place from living in trenches and gas and all blood and all these things and they would meet with Freud and Freud would try to convince them their problem was that they had an attraction to their mother and and they had repressed desires and other people were telling him uh, Freud maybe it's just trauma from war but he couldn't get that he had to convince you you had a sexual problem you know, because that was his theory. That was his solution. He had to ram his problem into your life because that was his one solution in his tool book. And uh, so, again, that's psychotherapy at its worst, right? Uh, a good psychotherapist is a listener who doesn't try to ram a particular theory into you. But, um, so that's what he's talking about. That they do, and he says they have ingenious methods to try to get that. Uh, then this man can now be claimed for God, and Methodism can celebrate its triumph. Okay, Methodism isn't the Methodists that you see today in America in your nice little church down the street. I will, I will give my apologetics for the United Methodist Church right now. Um, what he's talking about is going way back when there was an early sort of strain of thought that was bigger than just the United Methodist Church. But the idea was that if people didn't understand their sinfulness and their need for redemption, you could use methods to sort of induce this sort of existential crisis. You could use methods to get them to see their sinfulness and then use methods to get them to see their salvation that you didn't have to just sit there in your church and wait for something to happen. You could induce this. There were methods. And there were some really unscrupulous methods 
that were tried. I think there was one called like the tribulation chair where you, they, they'd put you all up front and it was like a whole crowd going, go, 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 go. Well, my gosh, if I'm under enough pressure and a whole crowd's chanting, I'll just tell them I'm a sinner just to get them to quit chanting at me, right? Uh, so that's what he's talking about. That's the Methodism he's talking about, not, you know, uh, not your church down the street. So uh, don't avoid the Methodist church because they don't do tri because you're worried about tribulation chairs. They don't do that anymore, I swear. Um, but if he cannot, right, but if he cannot be brought to see and admit, not, not just that there is, that, that his happiness is incomplete, but his happiness is an evil. Whoa. His health is sickness. His vigor is despair. You know, they're going to flip it on its head. You know, you think, you think you're happy, but your happiness is really built on sin, you know, you're only happy because you're exploiting others. You know, you're only, you're, you're only healthy for now, but the clock is ticking. They're not even just saying, this is beyond the gaps. This is taking everything that's good and valuable in your life and telling you that it's rotten. No wonder, again, no wonder people don't listen to that. So then when they reject it, the theologian goes, well, you're just a hardened sinner. Grr. And, you know, you've seen that. I, you know, I saw one of these like little mini videos where this woman says, I didn't leave church because I want to do debauchery. And apparently when she quit going to church, that's what her friend says. Oh, you just want to go and be debauched and hook up and all this kind of stuff. Um, she says, I didn't do that. I did it because, and she had these theological arguments with, you know, literalism and fundamentalism and stuff. Um, but there we go. Uh, but that was the complaint. Well, obviously, if you're not willing to see your sin, it's because you love sin. You know, you're, you're trying to avoid God because you're trying to protect your sinfulness. You, 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 you don't want to go to church because you want to keep hooking up. You know, um, that kind of thing. That's the bourgeois complacency. Okay, let's get to our last slide here. You see, that is the attitude that I am contending against. When Jesus blessed sinners, they were real sinners. But Jesus did not make everyone a sinner first. He called them away from their sin, not into their sin. It is true that encounter with Jesus meant the reversal of all human values. So it was the, in the conversion of Paul. Though in his case, the encounter with Jesus preceded the realization of sin. It is true that Jesus cared about people on the fringe of human society, such as harlots and tax collectors, but never about them alone, for he sought to care about man as such. Never did he question a man's health, vigor, or happiness, regarded in themselves, or regarded them as evil fruits. Why else would he heal the sick and restore strength to the weak? Jesus claims for himself and the kingdom of God, the whole of human life and all its manifestations. I, almost, I want to start just a little bit at the end, but think about that. Just think about that line. If healing people will make them smug and complacent, why heal them? Why make people's lives better if making their lives better will only make them less feel they need God and more likely to go out and sin? If making people better makes them more sinful, wouldn't you want to make them worse? 
Because maybe if somebody's sick and recognizes they need God because they're sick, maybe you want to keep them sick so they keep their need for God, right? I mean, it really does make no sense. You don't heal anybody then. I mean, you may leave them sick in this world, but then at least they'll get they'll accept that you know they'll get saved in the next. You know, it's a short-term loss for long-term gain. I mean, and, and then you go, wait, wait, what? Why would you want to keep people sick? I, I've wondered about this too sometimes with the whole debate about social programs. You know, if you go to Scandinavia where the taxes are high and the social programs are generous, church attendance is very low. And one of the things people have pointed out is exactly this. Uh, I got life good. The welfare state has me pretty secure, you know. Um, I don't need God. Well, if God is only found outside of the joy of human experience and you've got life pretty good, then yeah. You know, essentially social programs have pushed the need for God out. And I've, I've wondered if there's an angst somewhere deep down in the fundamentalist worldview about social programs being too successful or a welfare state functioning too well because they're nervous that it might make people too happy and content and not feel like they need the church for their existential problems and they might not need the church charities for their physical problems and that essentially they're kind of nervous the social programs are going to put them out of business and so they oppose social programs to deliberately continuously keep uh, the social chaos going so that they can be the solution to the social chaos, right? If I can fix social problems without people needing to make the ethical changes that you demand then maybe the social programs have put you out of business. If I can be, you know, the Scandinavian who sleeps around and sleeps around, I'm assuming this is a caricature, you know, who sleeps around all day and all night, and never gets married and has three living together, you know, partners and doesn't believe in the institution and sleeps around some more and, and uh, you know, and has a perfectly contented life, then there might be not, not be a need for my sort of the importance of marriage as a family institution. Now, I, and I remember being a kid in Sweden, sitting there in my class, looking around, uh, you know, early 80s. Uh, I was the only one in my class whose parents got married before they conceived me. The only one. All the others, if their parents were married, which was maybe only about half of them, they were at their parents' wedding. Uh, and it was just, it was very fluid, very fluid. And I was definitely the only one who went to church. And so it has made me kind of wonder if, if there's, if part of what's going on is because we have a theology that requires God to be the solution to problems, that we kind of feed problems, that we're closed off to solutions that might work. That it might be that we really can just house all the homeless by raising taxes and building a lot of apartment buildings and giving them all an apartment. And that in that way, then they wouldn't need to have to go through your particular charity. Now, I don't think any program's ever going to be airtight. Uh, but uh, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting thing to reflect on. It felt very convicting when I thought about it. Because I thought, yeah, how do we, you know, 
how do you proclaim the value of God in a world where people are pretty contented? You have to make God something that makes life more, not fill in the less. Uh, I, I, was, I saw again online this woman was arguing about why she uh, isn't married. And her argument is, I've got money, you know, I've got a job, I have a degree that gets me a good job, so I don't need a man to pay bills. I don't need a man to take care of my house. I don't need a man to give me kids. She already had them. And she's like, I got everything I need. If I'm going to have a man, he has to add to the value of my life. There's nothing missing in my life. A man has to add to my value. And she says, the men don't want to add to their value. They want, to, they, they, they want me to need them. I want them only to want me, not, uh, not, not to need me to need, need, not to want me to need them. There we go. And, you know, in many ways, that's kind of how modern people look at God. God has to be an ad, a value added. Uh, and we haven't really thought about how to do that. That's a different way of sort of constructing things. I do think in some ways the Pentecostal churches are onto something in that, they uh, really put a strong emphasis on experiencing God today uh, and the idea that God through spiritual gifts adds to your life. It, 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 and it adds to joy. So you go to a Pentecostal service, the goal is not to beat into your head what a sinner you are. Uh, it's to fill you with such overflowing joy, right? And that that's what people come back for is the overflowing joy. It's why I think I see people, uh, you know, go to some of these, there's a guy I follow on Instagram up in Toronto, and he goes to these kind of, these, I don't know, I call them sort of new age, sort of burning man type things, and they look very hippie-ish. Uh, and he takes his camera around, and there's all these people in their, you know, leather fringe and tie-dye batik and stuff running around. Um, but he, he talks about how he's always been intrigued by the mystical and the experience of divine. And there's all these people and they're dancing around and they really look like they're having a great time. And I realize this is a guy who has a perfectly contented good life, but what he's getting in that, you know, party in the park is an increase of his experience. And so, you know, instead of bashing people's vigor, let's make their vigor more vigor. Right? Let's make your health more health. I do think prosperity preachers are also tapping into this, although they're doing it in a very selfish way. Instead of more experience of the holy, it's more cash for me, which is not what Jesus was done. Um, and so, okay, let's go back just to the beginning. We'll wrap this up with this. But he says, um, the, as he says, this is the attitude I'm contending against. Bonhoeffer says, I'm just, I got to go against this God of the gaps, deus ex machina stuff, this make people miserable, so I, I got to go against this. And then he says, and then he gets into the Bible. He says, when Jesus blessed sinners, they were sinners. And it's true, Jesus never runs around saying, you are a sinner. You need to repent of your sins. People come to Jesus for healing, and often it's other people calling them sinners or treating them as sinners. Uh, or they will openly just ask him for forgiveness, you know. Lord, have mercy on me. 
Jesus never has to call people out on their sin. When he does do that, it's usually, it's usually people in positions of wealth and power whose sin that he's calling out their hypocrisy or something, right? You know, the temple priest who goes and judges the old lady, you know, the temple priest who judges somebody because they don't give enough, uh, they don't fast enough, their sacrifice isn't big enough. He calls them out on their hypocrisy and judgment. That's the sin he calls out a lot. He doesn't uh, just walk down to your ordinary person on the street. If you read the Gospels and think about this, Jesus' encounters, like who does he tend to encounter? He tends to encounter uh, religious people who are questioning and criticizing him. And he, he encounters Romans every so often who acknowledge him, you know, the guy Jairus, his daughter's sick, you know, and he comes to Jesus and, and, uh, uh, and, and he does admit, he's kind of hit the end. He's like, I can command people to think, I can't command my daughter to think. You know, he admits that, that he needs God, but Jesus doesn't run around telling people they're a sin so that they'll ask him to forgive them. He doesn't tell people they're sick so that, they can, so that he can heal them. Uh, and, and he says this about the Apostle Paul too, that Jesus didn't appear to the Apostle Paul and say, you're a sinner. He appeared to the Apostle Paul in this incredible experience that literally knocked him off his horse and, fe- uh, and that he fell off. And it was after he had the incredible experience, that's when Jesus says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But he has the experience first. So the experience precedes it. And I've really found there's a real value in saying that, that maybe we've got it wrong, that we're more likely to experience sin or understand our sinfulness after we experience love rather than seek love after we're berated about our experience. And, and that's a little bit... How do I explain that? Think about addiction. There's a couple strains in how to deal with addiction. They, they, I think they both have some value, but more and more we're trying, you know, one strain says, you know, you just need to be called out, hit rock bottom, left to suffer, and when you're strung out on the street drinking rain, you know, overflowing rainwater, then you'll realize, right? <coughs> you need to be called out. The other side says, the person who's in the addiction is probably self-medicating trauma and loneliness. So shower them with friendship and love and community, and then when they experience that, that will help them from that position. Then they will recognize when they see the opposite of the pain, when they can see the goodness and experience it, then they'll want to change. You know, there's value in both, right? There will be people that will tell you, I got clean because I, I had the intervention and I hit rock bottom. And there will others who will say, you know, if I didn't have this person with me the whole time, I would never have gotten clean. And this is, I think, where, where we're getting at, is he's trying to say that Jesus was not really of the, the tough love guy that ran around telling people, you know, what you're doing is wrong. Think of somebody like Zacchaeus, right? You know, Zacchaeus, he wanted to see Jesus. He climbs up on the tree and Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. He invites himself over. Uh, and as soon, before, as soon as Jesus walks in, before he can even answer anything, Zacchaeus is like, all right, I'm going to change my way. I'm going to stop overcharging people. I'm going to stop overtaxing people. I'm going to pay back with, with interest what I took from people. 
Jesus never told Zacchaeus he was a sinner. He invited him into community, and then Zacchaeus recognized his sin. Now, it's possible Zacchaeus knew what he was doing, you know, had had his revelation beforehand. We don't know. Um, but they, they, the encounter with Jesus comes before the change, usually. And that's what Paul's talking about. Maybe we need to, you know, uh, reverse our thinking on this. Reverse our thinking on this. Uh, and so, as a church, you know, as a pastor of a parish church, I, you know, sit back. I'm going to flip our we can. I'm going to sit myself back in the middle here for a second. Uh, just sort of final thoughts, but, you know, this has been one of those things where you sit down and, you know, you think, okay, how do we make, I hate to say make ourselves relevant or make ourselves important, but, you know, when I talk to people who have gotten involved, there's usually a point where they talk about a powerful experience that is extremely positive and that part of our challenge is to rethink what we're doing, that instead of just being an answer to questions in the negative, we need to be a place that can help to a space, a context, to generate experiences of overflowing joy, experiences of love, experiences of transcendence, uh, experiences of better health. Because usually, right, if we have one of these really great experiences, we'll come back to whatever it is. You know, you go to a restaurant, and I had this really great experience of this waffle. It's the greatest waffle. You know, they put cayenne pepper in it, and I loved that waffle. I don't know. Um, but it's the great experience that keeps you coming back. If you're coming back to fill the, the need, the negative, then you create a dysfunctional sort of codependent relationship. Again, at its worst, right? And so what a church will end up attracting, if, if everything in the church is about the negative and, and filling in that negative space and being the answer to the problems, the church will put itself out of business if it gets people out of their problems too quick, right? And the kind of person you will, that church will attract will be people who are chronically anxious and nervous and full of problems. If you create a church that is an overflowing experience of positive joy and transcendence through overflowing joy, uh, then you won't need to sort of keep people needy. I, I have found, and maybe this is a personal observation, that uh, if you don't, sometimes if you don't feed the needy, the needy will go somewhere else because they don't want <laughs> to be better. Uh, that's its own thing. But some thoughts to think about. You know, what Bonhoeffer's saying, I don't think is impossible to do, to create a Christianity that is about a, a sort of the overflowing positive, that that's where we're going to find ourselves, uh, in the overflowing positive, not in the the fix of the negative, not in the deus ex machina. Um, all right, that's my thoughts for today. Uh, it's been about an hour. Thank you all for tuning in, as always. Uh, feel free to leave me a message or questions if you have. Uh, otherwise, I'll be back next week. Bonhoeffer's got more of this in his letters. People ask me, how many more am I going to do? I don't know, I'll go till I'm done, but it's probably just going to be a handful left, uh, if even that, uh, till I get through all these slides. So, Thanks a lot. Have a great week. God bless.